Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning, everybody. You are listening to The Main Course. We're broadcasting live out of Roberta's 261 Moore Street. Uh, we are engineered by Joe Galarraga. Joe, wake up. Are you there? I'm here. How's it going, Patrick? You've already pre-recorded a, an episode of Cutting the Curd with Ann Saxelby that's going to air this Monday, I guess, huh? Yeah, I think it's either going to be Monday or maybe it's Friday. Oh, Friday? Yeah. I think that's so uh, give us now. a little... Uh, a little insight. What 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 are we going to hear this Friday from that great cheese show? Um. Here, so here's the sneak peek. Uh, Greg Blaze uh, came into the studio to talk about how when he started as a cheesemonger, that wasn't even really a profession. It was kind of just working at cheese counters, and it wasn't what it was today, certainly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so now he's over at Italy, and he's purchasing all those awesome cheeses they have there. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, uh, I'm very excited. Uh, he had a, a good energy about him. So we're, we have a great show today. We're going to have Christy Robb, a born and raised New Yorker like myself. We're going to talk about New York City. We're also going to talk about... Um, bread and life and you know fighting hunger here in brooklyn i'm very excited we're gonna have a call in from philip Berger, who i believe is one of the owners of Berger's smokehouse which is one of the great ham curing operations in the nation but sadly for joe who has to listen to it i often start shows with a kind of op-ed kind of energy so joe prepare fluff up that cushion be prepared to go to sleep for the next minute and a half um, basically, my thing is on ground meat. And I, I think that if the new farm movement is going to take off, it'll be a lot easier and better for everyone involved if the trend is towards grinding the most meat possible. On average, on an 800-pound steer on the rail, <clears throat> I've seen between 20 and 80% of that whole 800 pounds turned into ground meat. It's very simple. The more meat that is ground, the fewer pieces the farmer needs to worry about selling. There are a hundred ways to cut up a cow, but how awesome is it for the farmer when he only has to worry about a few? Lower cuts, like the beef round, which can weigh up to 80 pounds, just aren't that popular as pieces, whether on the butcher counter or on the menu. Um, So this nose-to-tail thing, while admirable and fun, you know, I kind of think instead of nose-to-tail, it's more a ground meat movement could could be helpful. My friends at uh, Farm 255 in Athens, Georgia, are so savvy as to the true nose-to-tail cooking uh, that they started a new farm, Moonshine Meats Farm, to supply their restaurant. As the farm grew with the demands of the restaurant, other farms got on board with their program to help supply them. More farms, of course, meant more animals and more complications to get rid of the myriad of cuts that come from all these cows. So they opened another restaurant called Farm Burger, which was immediately popular selling their really awesome hamburgers. Now there are three burger locales. It's almost a a mini chain. And more farmers are signing on every day because they can grind up up to 80% of each animal. It's a real tremendous achievement. 
and they can sell the few remaining cuts, the ribeye, the strip, and the tenderloin at a lower price because those cuts are no longer responsible to carry the whole carcass. And they never get stuck with inventory. Everything moves, new farms are created, and the old ones are empowered with new business. And the slow food movement keeps marching on. So uh, we're going to take a short break and come back with Christy Robb of Bread and Life. Well, Miss Louise, can't you understand? You're listening to Miss Louise by the California Honey Drops on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Why can't you see? Well, Miss Louise, this could never be. You're looking pretty good for a dinosaur. But don't you never come back, come back around here no more. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. I really love the Tabard Inn. Unfortunately, the music that was chosen makes it sound like a Greek taverna, but uh, <laughs> Tabard Inn is amazing. I stayed there once and it was like a 10-minute walk from the door to the bed. And you were all, <laughs> through all this like misshapen wood. And it is a fun, historic place for sure. Um, I'm happy they sponsored us. So I'm in studio with Christy Robb. Welcome, Christy. Hey. How Thanks are you? so much for coming. So we met at Bread and Life, um, which is the largest hunger relief organization in Brooklyn, right? Yes. And uh, so it's a great thing, and, and I know you work in the bowels of it, you know, in the kitchens, <laughs> getting stuff done. You know, you're really on the front lines uh, with your, you know, services to that nonprofit. But I also wanted to have you on, and I want to start with this, the fact that you, like me, are part of the select few people that are born and raised in New York City. Yeah, absolutely. So you, were, you grew up in the 60s and 70s, right? I did. So tell us. 1960, to be exact. 1960, you were born? Yep. So, uh, wow, uh, let's just to contextualize, where are you, uh, what block did you live on? I grew up on 64th between Lexington and Park in Manhattan. 64th between Lexington and Park. So Bloomingdale's is right there? Bloomingdale's, great fun store to be at. That little, uh, well, I want to talk about Bloomingdale's. Well, what did you used to do with your sister? Well, when we were sort of kicked out of the house to go out and just get, get out, which is unheard of today, right? This is all Mad Men world. And, you know, people didn't want us around. So we would go down to Bloomingdale's and ride the escalators and touch the fur coats in the back of the ladies <laughs> for hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> and just, I don't know, wander around the store. Well, back then but, it was okay to just send your kids out. Be oh, like, totally. walk around totally. 59th and Lex. That was uh, no problem back then. Oh, I don't know if it was no problem, but you were sent out. <laughs> yeah, and Bloomingdale's was a safe place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, lots of stuff did happen to kids at that point. 
when we, you know, riding the bus. I, re- I refused to go to school at one point because of all the perverts. That was the reason you chose? <laughs> yeah, that, that was a big reason. I mean, there was weird guys on the bus because I took the bus all yeah. the way uptown. Things were a little different back then. But now you had some famous people living on your block. Lee Remick, is it true? Yes. Lee Remick lived right next door. Wow. And, and did uh, you play with his kids or anything? We played with her kids and uh, we hung out at their house. She had a daughter named Kate, and uh-huh. I'm forgetting what her son's name is. He used to stick bananas in his ear. Did she just? Uh, uh, I'm sure he still does that. Um, mm-hmm. Is she just like? Was she gorgeous? She was beautiful, and she was very down to earth. I mean, I remember her being really sweet. Mm-hmm. I remember lying on her bed. She had one of those big upholstered pu- uh, pillow cushions, which I have one of mm-hmm. those now, mm-hmm. and I love it. And um, she was the only person I knew that had one, and she was very glamorous, but in a very low key way. Any other famous people? Um, Otto Preminger lived across the street. I didn't really know him. Um, but now, it's interesting. Back then, it seemed, am I wrong to think that more people mingled? Like, there would have just been fewer coffee shops and fewer, like, it was, now things are more separated. Uh, uh, I yeah, don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, like... Even like crazy sti- people were on the buses. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, Stitching Horse was right on the corner of 64th and Lex, and that was a big hangout. I remember my older sister, Wendy, was very beautiful and very cool, and she would hang out there, and they had a huge fish tank and leather all around and all these cool guys. And I was always with her because, you know, again, Mad Men world, nobody really cared what I was doing, so they mm-hmm. just pawed me off on her all the time. <laughs> so she took me to Midnight Cowboy when it was X-rated. But I remember the guy saying to her, uh, ma'am, this is an X-rated film. I don't think maybe she should. And she said, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> Just <laughs> waltzed in. And I was like, wow. you know." That's awesome. And uh, she took me to Trash, Andy Warhol's Trash. And I think even at that one, she was a little crumpling herself. And she sort of said to me at one point, should we leave? Should we, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm fine. And who were the people <laughs> going to that? What were they like? Oh, God, I don't even remember the people. All I remember is the screen and all the, you know major genitalia yeah, and yeah. hair on. It was like, you know, it was an intense film. And where did you go down <laughs> to the Soho? I don't know where we were. I think we went to the to the group of theaters that was on 3rd Avenue. Do you remember them? The between 59th and 60th? Oh, you mean the movie theater? Yes, we were this was Trash the movie. Andy oh, Warhol's Trash the movie. Trash. There was Did a you mo- not see that? Apparently you didn't see that when you were eight. No, I was born in 72. <laughs> ah, okay. So. I loved all those movie theaters. All those movie theaters are gone now. Are they those yeah. ones on Third Avenue? And wow. there was one on 59th between second and third, or between uh, third and second. Yep. And they had an upstairs balcony, which was awesome because it was empty most of the time. This was back in an era when you played the same movie for three months, four months, and so you know if you wanted to see Gremlins eight times, <laughs> you could. Or, you could, and I would always <laughs> go up. And it had a crazy thing in the. They had this little part of uh, the aisle jutted out into the hallway. So people came up the stairs and they turned and they were looking for their seats, but they had this thing jut out. And people that. would wipe out because it was right at hip level, <laughs> and their them walking was fast enough to, and they would like literally do a complete flip over. And this happened, I don't know, four <laughs> times in all my years. I was amazed they never fixed it. But uh, yeah, there were a lot more movie theaters back then. You also had a great, cool pet shop right on sixty. 60- Second in Lexington. It was oh, I, vaguely I remember the pet shop. And then of course you had the Armory, which would hold special events all the time. That's yeah, that like was an awesome. An, yeah, that, I mean that's now that's I mean they do the whole antique show and everything. But we also had different drummer, which was really a cool store. That was a real hippie store 
fringe and purple suede and cool music and you know famous people in there julie newmar catwoman i remember being in there and seeing her because huh. again we were just wandering around touching suede and we were very textile tactile yeah i, I can tell now textile. what about a pumpkins and monkeys do you remember that shop Pumpkins and monkeys. <laughs> I'm a kid. I was a kid when I lived there. You remember all He's this cool lying. stuff? There's no pumpkins and monkeys. It was a place where I could get my hair cut. There was wow. also La Goulou and Le Relais, all these kind of fancy restaurants. Very on fancy Madison. restaurants around there. Yeah. yeah. Very fancy. So um, now you grew up and uh, did you love New York? I mean, how has it changed? I mean, it's it's more... Oh, New York was New York was so much grittier, obviously. Everybody talks about that. It was so much grittier. Um, you didn't go places that you shouldn't go. I mean, I remember one time riding the two train by accident, going into Harlem and coming up the stairs, and a guy said to me, little sister, you don't want to be here, and kind of pushed me down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and I left immediately. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like... It, Would something bad have happened to you? or Maybe. Just, yeah, I don't know. Bad it's things like, did happen. I just remember how much hype is it. Yeah, bad things no, would happen bad to things kids. did... That's terrible. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Uh, no, I mean I I love New York, but I was I was kind of a bad kid because I went to I, first I went to Sacred Heart, where on Caroline second and ninety first and fifth, fifth where right? the old Con Mansion, beautiful beautiful building, wild place. What? Um, <laughs> what was it? it was a wild it was a place. School. Nuns lived there. Oh, we were bad. I mean, we were always doing horrible things, and you know, because you had God on your side, He gave you portfolio, and we had uniforms, and you know, you know the thing about Catholic girls—they wear the uniforms, but they're always they kind of the wilder ones. Yeah, they were. You naughty. had those uh, nice uh, kind of dark plaid dresses. Uh, yeah, and we then we had gray pleated. Uh, skirts and Oxfords. Right. It's and real it had sexy. that clasp right on the <laughs> yeah, left. The oh, wait, wait. Thing. I'm sorry. I'm going too far. <laughs> um, but I went there for the first six years. And Caroline was in residence there. Caroline Kennedy with me and uh, the Lawford daughters. How, how, how many John grades John. apart? Um, she is, was probably three grades above me. Oh, really? I'd say, yeah, she was older than me. Did she have something back then? Do you remember her? Of course. <laughs> There was a lot of genuflecting. I was very into Jesus at that time. Yeah. I was. I was a little religious kid at that point. Um, no, she was... I mean, everybody looked up to her because we obviously knew who she was. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Even then? When even you say then, she's in residence. Oh. She was going to school there, too. She was... I mean, so being She was a, a student. Uh, being a... What was her first maiden name? Uh, Kennedy. This is Jacqueline... And John Kennedy's daughter. Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> That's crazy. I know he was, you know, around before your time. but Three grades ahead. I would say she was, yeah, three, probably three or four grades ahead. And then the was Lawford there daughters was her. for them or, or no, glamour? Glamour, glamour. Because there were so much hard times for her. That daughter yes. especially. She's the only one left. I know, I know. Because John went, went out in his early years with a girl in my class, Tina Haig. And um, so, I mean, we hung out with him a bit. Obviously, that didn't stick for me. I, I moved on to other things. To more handsome men. <laughs> well, so, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, uh, so tell me, so Sacred Heart to where? Then I went to Nightingale Bamford around the corner. That wow. was a huge move. Um, That's was, like going from the Red Sox to the Yankees or the Mets to yeah, the Yeah, I don't Yankees. even think it's that far. Um, but, yeah, it was um, – and I was miserable there because it was a very uptight school. And no, 
no creative juices going on there at all. So I was continually running away and running out to the park. I was hanging out in Central Park. Because you were a little bit like a punk rocker, a well, little bit a of a little radical. Bit later, at this point, I was How into, old are you? I'm about 15, and I'm into the New York Dolls, and I'm into Bowie and the Stones, and I'm into the whole kind of crossover gay thing. Um, what was the other, San- California, but the Tubes? With the big shoes, and you know, it was kind of that. And then so I got would into you the stand park. in line to get records and stuff when you knew they were coming out? Oh, yeah. And then, like, I went to the first Rocky Horror Show picture show as a play with mm. um, uh, Tim Curry. That was, you know, I'd, I mean, it was unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like that. That was 1975. And then I, I started running away and staying away from home in school. Hmm. And I finally went to my headmistress and said, if you don't tell my parents I need a different school, I'm going to drop out. I'm going to be 16 next month, and I'm going to drop out of school, and it's going to be on your head. Wow, so you really manipulated her. Yes, I was like, I was really, I will never forget it. And she, to her credit, did call my parents and say, get her into a different school. She's serious. She's going to drop out. Wow, that's awesome. So then I went to Elizabeth Irwin. The graduate where Angela Davis graduated. Oh, Angela Davis, huh? Yeah, graduated from Elizabeth Irwin, which was the high school to Little Red Schoolhouse. It's still there, obviously. Both schools are still there. Uh, Charlton, between Houston and Sixth Avenue. Huh. I mean, between Varick and Sixth Avenue. And Little Red is on the corner of, uh, what is this, on the corner of like Third or Bleecker? Bleecker, I think. Uh huh. Um, and that was a whole huge awakening for me. Is that me. where you became a radical? Kind of, yeah. So Sacred what Heart happened had there? something to do with it, but... Is it more the parents that chose the, that school for their kids and it would develop a certain tetoir or reputation for a certain energy uh, belief both, system? Both, probably, right? I mean, it had, you know, Julius and uh, Ethel Rosenberg's kids went there. Arthur Miller's kids went there. So, you know, a lot of different kind of interesting people. There was a lot of artists' kids went there. So I think it was a combination, but that was a total blossoming for me. I mean, I was in the I was in the village. I you know I just became a different it? person. It was very progressive. We could call the teachers by their first names. Um, it was much more of a conversation. There was much more freedom. I took all this art and photography and stuff I'd never done. I mean, Nightingale didn't care about art or music really. I mean, just as kind of an adjunct, but. They really wanted you to go to Yale and Princeton and Harvard and be a total academic brainiac. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, when I got to EI, I had to take all these art classes to graduate because I had no arts or, arts or music in my history. But I mm-hmm. completed science, you know, by ninth grade. <laughs> you know, it's like. Um, so that's also it. The, your curriculum was fun. Yeah. I mean, I remember our, we had a poli sci teacher who um, gave us an application from a beverage company in Seattle and said, Fill out, don't fill out anything on the application that you think is discriminatory. So we all did what we thought we should do. And then he holds up his at the end of the exercise, and his is blank. He said, as soon as you put your name in, they're going to figure out what ethnicity you are and peg mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And that was like, wow. I remember my fa- coming home and my father going, I can't believe I'm paying for this socialist crap. You know, he was really conservative. <laughs> so he was furious. Yeah. Know? But that was sort of the beginning for me of like, kind of like, okay, life isn't fair. Why? And I'm going to be working towards social justice for, you know, I didn't so, think of it like that, but that's so that I was, was it. It was this epiphany of, of moving to this new school, being in this new environment, <clears throat> realizing that not everything is the same because you go from Nightingale to here. You think your life's over in Nightingale. 
you confront your principal in an alley somewhere and force her to call your parents. Break a bottle and throw it, check it to her neck. You're like, and you're going to use this quarter. You hear me? You're going to go to that payphone right now. This there is her number. pay phones. Trafalgar 7. Mine was Templeton 8. What was yours? Do you remember your... Mine was Templeton 8. I know that if you're ever in a fix, you call 249-2206. That's, okay. uh, that's how I would remember. All but, right. Uh, so... So tell us. I mean, tell us the. Uh... So then I went. Uh, then the other thing that radicalized me was I went to a KKK, an anti KKK rally in D.C. when I was about sixteen, around the same time. And I, were I, they holding a rally in D.C.? They were holding a rally in D.C. and they were going to go to three locations, and there was a huge uh, counter protest planned. Oh. And I somehow I went. I don't really remember why I went, but I went, and it was the cops kept putting them to the next location ahead of us. And so we were continually behind the eight ball, and we never actually had any confrontation with them at all. Good job, whoever organized that. Well, it was the cops. I mean, it was just they kept literally ferrying them ahead of the mm-hmm. schedule so that we would always miss I see, them. I see. And then we, by the, by the last stop, which was Lafayette Park, right across from the White House, we got, all got pepper sprayed. And then we finally made it there. I didn't get pepper sprayed, luckily, but a bunch of people did. But we made it there, and we're all kind of just standing there. And I'll never forget this. The cops jumped on, were on horses, galloped down the street, and just started bashing people. And I had never seen anything like that. Mm. So that totally changed my whole viewpoint on the haves and the have-nots in the society and the way people operated. And that was probably the, the that was really the like a tipping point yeah so uh I never so came back how did you do it how did that uh a radical bet manifest itself in your life well then i started doing all this stuff under the banner of rock against racism and i was doing all these big shows in central park and which uh, is the place you used to hang out in it was full circle back to the parky days which were what so what did they do in the band fun. show what happened under the oh, band show when the God. sun went down? It was so much fun. We used to have fires and barrels, and there was all these cool guys, and they played Ultimate would Frisbee. They, Do you remember they, Ultimate Oh, my God. Frisbee? I was a good Ultimate Frisbee Mountain. Player. Mountain, are you play? listening? I remember you, honey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they were all so cool. And would they play those upside-down barrels? No, they didn't do that. They that were, they were rock cool. and rollers. There was a, a band that everybody listened to called Galacticus. Galacticus, I think, and... Oh, everybody was so cool, and it was just, it was, it was, it was the bomb. And the, the cops days. let that happen today. Yeah, there was no cop action, really, yeah. that I remember. Very, I, I, we just hung out all the time. And, and it was, like, scary to walk into the park I'm sure people were scared of them, but I wasn't. Yeah. It no, was exactly. fun. It was fun, fun, fun. But anyway, then I came back and started doing shows at the band show. And actually, interestingly, one we used to always have to go to court with the city to get the permit. And eventually we went back and did a permanent injunction against some of their new rules that they put in, which made it very prohibitive to do shows there. And that a piece of that case went to the Supreme Court, and it was argued by Bill Kunstler. We lost it, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> the first mosh <laughs> pit there, Kraut. Any of you old punk rockers who remember Kraut played at one of our shows, and there was a big mosh pit started, and the cops freaked out and pulled the plug on the show hmm. and we had generators and <laughs> we we started it back up and then they closed it down again it was a lot of fun oh brother and uh but anyway one of the sh- one of the one of the case did go to the supreme court and it's it's a it's a constitutional case in the law books that a lot of law students study because there ain't that many of those cases that go to the supreme court hmm. but important. um yeah it was interesting um it was fun and then we did shows all over the country under rock against reagan 
So we did like Dead Kennedys in Dallas, Texas. That was probably sort of poor taste. Yeah, especially since I went to school with Caroline. But I know I don't know that she made the connection. Luckily, um, but we did a lot of stuff like that all over the country and during 1984, um, his second reelection. And uh, those were great days. I loved those days. So you were really an outsider. And like, when did? Uh yeah, so then, yeah, well, take us through, take us through. So then, uh, the life of a radical. <laughs> it's kind of fun. I forgot all this history. Um, so then we're in 84, we're in 84. but then he becomes president again, and yeah. then that's followed <laughs> yeah, by George Bush. that was a Bush. loss. <laughs> so how did you... Uh, how I think did you... I got to a place where I sort of felt like all of this work I'm trying to do is, is a needle in a haystack, you know. Uh, for years, it sort of sus- sustained me because I was like, we're, we're planting seeds. It's, even if we don't see the fruits of our labor till later, you know, it's okay, it's okay. But you, you eventually get burnt out on it. And I think I got very burnt out on trying to do that kind of political activism and just seeing it get worse and worse and worse. And then I thought, I'm going to go in, I'm going to do something a little more specific and individual and see if that helps. And I ended up with a job sort of accidentally, but I was sort of thinking about it in social services, working with homeless youth in Times Square area in, mm. at a program called Streetwork Project, a wonderful, wonderful program that completely formed my philosophy around the work. It was a harm reduction program, which was a model that came from Europe, working with uh, active drug users around AIDS prevention what was its program what was its uh, its idea was basically that they were the ones who really said we're going to give out clean needles we're going to give out condoms we're going to we're going to we're going to we're going to make it possible we're going to play the game so that we can be part of it and well to be safe right so that you know like take the judgment out about why somebody's shooting heroin or what you think they should do in the future and say okay this is a public health crisis. We have an AIDS crisis right mm-hmm. now, and people are dying because they're intermixing with people that are using dirty needles, and we're just going to give them clean needles. And that was Did very radical. Did you take their names? Was this a form of registry in any way? No, or no, no, no. This is what happened in Europe. It happened in Rotterdam and Liverpool. You could just go and grab a handful. They created a lot of different programs that address that issue in that mm-hmm. way, and it was called harm reduction. And um, so you could also get methadone. Um, in in Liverpool, in you know, and all kinds of stuff that that was starting to happen here, um, but so that that was my my background philosophy of the work I was doing. So that was already had a real social justice piece and a public health piece um, that you know a lot of our programs now do not have. Right, they don't really have a public health philosophy. But anyway, so that that got me started in social services. I became an office manager there and. Um, I did the triage counseling, so I was the first person that people met when they came in, and it was a little storefront on 10th Avenue mm-hmm. between uh, 46th and 47th in Hell's Kitchen, and we could only have 10 kids in at a time. And it had a lot of different types of kids, a lot of street kids, and um, back then there was a lot of welfare hotels in Times Square, so a lot mm-hmm. of kids were just sort of running the streets. And, uh, I mean, all that's gone now. But kids lived in the Port Authority, lived on top of the bus That was crazy. That was, a place you, that was a no-go zone. Yeah, that was a wild, wild uh, place. Yeah, it was really wild. It was, and it was intense, and um, but it was great, and I, I they loved it. They had the it. automat. Oh, I love the automat. Where was the automat? That was on was that Forty Second? Was it on Forty Second? Maybe. Yeah, uh, I don't remember exactly the street, but I remember I could open a little door if I put a quarter in and get a tuna sandwich. Loved or that. Yeah. So uh, fast forward to bread and life. I mean, uh, so yeah, then I'd been in social service all these years, but mostly doing case management and working with clients and um, running groups and. 
But I've always had a food piece on the side. Um, I started a, f- a pantry with a bunch of friends back in the late 80s in the Lower East Side that just closed down literally a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So that pantry was going for a long, long time. So I always sort of had that as a side piece. Even at street work, I started a food pantry. and you know, But it wasn't really my specialty um, until the last couple of jobs. So I had a job before Bread and Life where I was running a pantry in Queens. Okay. And then I just accidentally... You know, again, fell into the job at Bread and Life because I knew Tony. Tony, uh, very, Butler very Anthony Butler. You know, Executive unbelievable director. guy. So you work in the kitchens with the people, but you work all throughout the building, obviously. But what is your role? My role is director of food services. So I'm in charge of the pantry and the and the soup kitchen and all the food that's going out of there. And we've been doing a lot of amazing stuff, and you've been part of some of that. How's um, your team doing? I mean, who's they're on doing your team? really well. I I've got. Um, uh, seven people that uh, most of who were clients at one point then became volunteers and then eventually were hired. Um, all of them have been there a long time. Nobody's been there less than probably three or four years. And they don't really have professional cooking backgrounds, but they've really been getting into it and they've really been stepping up and getting excited about making good food. We're making How many all this meals food from scratch. Do you we're make doing that? about yeah. 1,600 meals a day. And some of which are going out on the mobile truck to disaster areas and to other locations, and some of which are right in house. You got the, a shout out at the Hurricane Sandy. Yes, uh, that's right. About how your truck would go where even the firemen and cops didn't want to go, but that truck would make it out there. Yeah, that truck went out like, I don't know, the second week of the hurricane, like right in the very beginning, November 6th, I think, election day was the first day they went out there. Huh. So and they've been going out ever since. That truck is still going out, and that's about an extra six hundred meals a day that we're doing. Wow! Yeah, so it's pretty where do you incredible. get? Where do you source all your food? Different places. You know, we have vendors that we buy from. We have grants. We have in kind. Uh, I mean, uh, credit line grants, so that where we can purchase food, but it's we don't see the money, so we can just order the food. But you know, we have a credit line and. Um, a lot of it comes out of general operating, you know. You have a very to be lovely raised. kitchen that you work in. Yeah, that's a really fun kitchen. I had so much fun during the hurricane because we just kept making these soups, you know, and there'd always be a little bit left in the bottom of the pot, so that would just become the base of the next day's soup, and it just went on and on and on. Hey, uh, Joe, I think we just found our quote for Christy for the website. I have so I had so much fun during Hurricane Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> that might that. not be the best. <laughs> I mean, that might be confusing to some. But. How do we, just kidding, how do we uh, give money? How do people give money to uh, Bread and Bread Life? Bread and Life has a website, breadandlife.org, all spelled out the way it sounds. And um, you can, you know, obviously give money online anytime. And uh, we love money. Money helps us. Money helps us buy meat from Heritage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We bought, what, how many hams this year? Thousands. Thousands of yeah, hams. Yeah, very nice uh, um, for you to do that every, uh, you know, well, it's been the past couple of years, and I know you rotate around and, and do from a bunch of different people. Um, yeah, we love doing that. And, but we're happy with yeah. it. It's worked out really well. You've Good. been very reliable, too. Yeah, well, I'll, I deliver myself, just like the old you days. You do. Merchants matter. <laughs> I love it. So um, thanks so much for coming on, Christy. Uh, Thank you for having that's me. That's breadandlife.org we are going to take a short break and come back with part of American ham heritage Philip Berger you're listening to Rain by the California Honey Drops on the Heritage Radio Network.org
We are back on a live edition of the main course and calling in. We're very honored to have Philip Berger on the line. Hey, Philip, how are you? Hey, good morning. Good to be with you. I guess good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, good afternoon here by 33 minutes. We're an hour ahead of you. And yes, uh, so you left church a little early to uh, come and do the show. That was very, very nice. I hope God forgives you for uh, coming on. <laughs> well, uh, I hope so, too. Glad to be here. Well, tell us about, I mean, uh, your hams are really a part of American culture, you know, like in the middle of America, but then you also, your hams are on menus like at Momofuku Sambar and a lot of the great high-end restaurants in the big cities also celebrate your product. So it's really part of American history. But tell us about Burger Smokehouse in the beginning, uh, before even it became a, a, a ham production facility you guys were in farming just take our listeners through the history of, of the family well hey we'll be glad to uh my grandfather uh edwin morris or em as he was called was really a farmer here in missouri on not exactly the greatest of land not bad but not great so he was always willing to try about anything of course in diversified farming you had some crops you had it was uh you know, cattle, uh, hogs, chickens, various things. Well, uh, in the wintertime, you would butcher typically your, your hogs late December, January, and you would begin the process of curing, and that would be on the hams uh, or the bacon or the bellies, uh, shoulders, and things like that. So in that case, you did it just because that's that was part of... Uh, uh, just like canning vegetables from your garden, that's how you preserve food. There was no refrigeration uh at best, maybe, you know, ice boxes at the time. So it was really done out of necessity uh, at that time. Well, what happened is his recipes, who came from his uh, mother, uh, Hilda, uh, of German heritage, well, the, the, I guess the ability or the, uh, how should I put it, the processes they used for curing became popular. He started curing a few extra hams and selling them. Now, what is he, this, the Germans or the Black Forest ham tradition, right? Yes, but the Black Force is a heavily cured, heavily smoked. This would have been not quite as as strong or stout as that. You know, as you recall, these hams had to last you a good long time. So uh, the more you cured them down, the less you had in the end. Now, nonetheless, uh, at that time, what he found very quickly was he could sell a couple of hams for more than the whole hog was worth. So he quickly began gathering extra hams, uh, filling up the various farm buildings uh, and aging hams to sell. Hmm. And very, very interesting. And that, that that's how it began. So, I mean, eventually he had to uh, put more attention towards this ham part of the business. And it's amazing statistic, this. Burgers became the first federally inspected country ham plant in the nation. Well, yes. And uh, yeah, to carry on the history lesson just a little further... The 20s, 30s, and the 40s simply brought ham curing as a side business to farming. Uh, again, uh, supplemental income uh, to a diversified farm operation. In 1952, uh, he had simply exhausted the various uh, rafter and attic space used to cure hams mm -hmm. uh, in the farm buildings, and so there he built a building, uh, which uh, was quite simply called the Ham House, and uh, mm -hmm. really at the time just to distinguish it from you know, we had a chicken house, uh, a hen house. Obviously, there was a smokehouse for the hams he was carrying, even, even an outhouse, of course, at that time. So mm -hmm. it was just a way to, 
to distinguish it, that was about a 40-foot by 60-foot building. And there is a time that then all of a sudden the market for the hams became probably the primary focus and became the kind of the daytime job. Farming went to be a night and weekend job. Okay. That said, then, uh, that was in 52. Uh, at the time, uh, inspection was granted uh, state by state uh, for cured meat or for country ham. Well, that meant that you couldn't necessarily sell it across state line. It depended on if the states cooperated with one another. He lobbied uh, the federal government on uh, several trips to Washington, D.C., that this process and the cured meat industry needed to be federally inspected, which then simply allowed the uh, you know the market to open up to various other states. And so uh, through his efforts and uh, lobbying and, of course, uh, helping USDA with the various rulemaking policies, uh, we were the first federally inspected country ham plant in the nation, and that was done in 1956. Wow, and, what uh, plant number do you have, if I Well, our plant number is 1161 or 1161, so it, this was not the beginning of federal inspection. Just, of course. Just uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the cured meat business. It's still a well, very low number. Well, sure, and really what it granted us at that time then was uh, country hams were popular, obviously, where we were here, but uh, also a, a great market through the K- K- Kentucky, Tennessee... Carolinas and Virginia. So geographically, it allowed us to expand in primarily to Kentucky and Tennessee, regionally the closest markets for us. But they have their own styles over there. I mean, did your style resemble their style, or how many different ham curing styles are there? I mean, I know Nancy Newsom down in Tennessee. I know there's Sam Edwards in Virginia. Uh, are there regional styles like they are with barbecue, for instance? Yes, there are, and uh, essentially the same thing happens. I've always sometimes compared meat curing a little bit to the art of, say, making whiskey. Uh, You end up with something that is, say, roughly 80 proof, uh, made from different beginnings, but in the end, a similar product. What happens in between, though, is fairly unique. You know, in their case, it's a source of water or or different things. In the ham curing business, it, it's what's in the cure, uh, and obviously it, it, it primarily has to be salt because you have a drying agent. You know, our cure is very simple. It's salt, uh, uh, brown sugar, and black pepper. Others might use white sugar. Some use paprika, uh, red pepper, uh, some a little garlic. There's different subtleties to the curing, but it goes much more beyond that. Region, regionally, uh, how long hams are aged uh, at certain temperatures they're aged, which affects uh, maybe how dry they get or, uh, or how they develop their flavor. Mm-hmm. In our, and there's also some differences in, in, in the methods of curing. Probably the most distinguishing factor for us is we use a method called bag curing, and that simply means every ham is rubbed with our, and this is a granular mixture, as I said, salt, brown, sugar, black pepper. We rub each ham, and we put a, a specific amount of cure on each ham, and, the, and a ham cure does this by experience. Uh, and we check throughout the day to see that, that they're doing it because every ham is slightly different in size. Mm-hmm. We then wrap each ham in paper to hold that cure against it, put a net on it, hang it up, and those hams begin the curing. A lot of folks cure in bins, so they would put hams in the in a bin and put the cure on it, and they think that we'll just give all the cure it'll take for a period of time and then pull them out. We do the opposite and say we're going to put a certain amount of cure on that ham and allow that to absorb Mm-hmm. So there's 
one difference, and and in the end, that primarily yields us a ham that is is less salty. And what we have found, and our customers have uh, told us, they like our ham because it's not as salty. It's still country ham. It's still preserved. It mm-hmm. still follows all the traditions, but it is unique in that it's not as salty. And the and the other thing that we do, we allow our hams typically to age oh a month or two months longer. Uh, you know. We normally age a ham around six months' time. That's that's a little longer than most, but the reason we do that is we allow the ham to naturally develop age or flavor through its aging, not through uh, a lot of excess cure. And that's what gives you maybe a saltier ham or a bitter taste rather than more of a, a maturely developed taste that you comes from, from a burger smokehouse ham. Hmm. Well, very, very interesting Uh so, I mean, take us through, uh, you know, what I really want to know about is the water knife machine that was featured on the Modern Marvels TV show. But uh, so spend extra time on that device. But just take us briefly through uh, the process. I mean, you kind of did already. Um, yes. Do you smoke them at any point? I mean, are they in a fiery kind of area uh, or I mean, they're smoked yes. hams, right? Yes. Well, you know, a typical journey uh, through the plant, uh, for us, hams arrive usually on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Uh, and somebody will say, well, what difference does that make? You know, well, to us, the difference it makes is between the time the, uh, the hogs are processed and, it, and to our doorstep, we want less than 48 hours. We, we don't want the ham to go. So what we'll do is a ham we cure on Wednesday are uh, hogs that were processed on Monday, and likewise for thursday and friday because if so you have want, a bad ham you could uh, find out six months later that you got it too long i mean it's a it's a terror there's very high spoilage rate once you get past 42 48 or 72 hours right that is correct and you really there are places you can for instance we don't want anything that's been previously frozen so yes it's the old adage you know computers years ago kind of garbage in garbage out so uh that's the first thing that that occurs Obviously, we mentioned the curing where we rub each ham. The journey begins in what's called a wintertime room. Again, you're simply duplicating seasons of the year that occurred naturally, uh, and that winter room is where the cure initially uh, penetrates, absorbs into the ham, and probably the most critical 10 days to 15 days of that ham's life is during that period of time. Hmm. You know, they're, uh, typically a ham's going to cure about two days per pound, uh, so... Uh, a 15 to 20 pound ham, not hard to know about how long it takes during that initial curing. The second phase, uh, uh, easy enough, is called the springtime room, or it's an equalization period. That's the time that a ham is, has finished its initial curing. Uh, the temperatures for curing simply need to be a refrigerated temperature, uh, so the ham absorbs the cure uh, and uh, doesn't get too warm to spoil or too cold to freeze. The second step involves more moderate temperatures, again, about like today in Missouri, a typical springtime, 50s kind of day, uh, at that temperature then, the cure that has been drawn into the ham, kind of through an osmotic process, is distributed through the various muscles in the ham, and it does continue to dry. Mm-hmm. We follow that with a summertime room, which is simply the, the place where the most flavor is developed. Uh, the hams kind of get hot enough that grease pops out. They call, you know, The old-timers call that like the, the July sweat. The last, and you mentioned earlier, smoking. Uh, smoking is quite regional. Uh, hams don't have to be smoked, but it, in, in, uh, in, in years past, it was typically done to avoid uh, 
different infestation of insects and things that could uh, come to the product. Smoking today is done for aroma and uh, and the flavor and the color. Uh, we use hickory. Uh, obviously, depending on where you're at, uh, different woods are available. Obviously, applewood is popular uh, as you go north. But we use natural hickory smoke, no liquid smoke. And, again, it's just the opportunity at the very end uh, to add a different aroma uh, and really kind of a mahogany color to the product. And the water knife? When's that? Well, the water. Yeah, the water knife. You know, several. Yeah, that was a, a piece of technology, and, and this is kind of where we are at odds at our, ourselves at work. We go in, and obviously we preserve the traditions, but yet there are some really wonderful new technologies that allow us to portion and cut in a very precise way. Mm-hmm. This is a piece of equipment that we uh, we simply take a ham and we, we we what we call break it down. That means we simply slice it from end to end, from the butt end uh, to the hock. Of course, you're. Your, your listeners probably know the butt end, more like the hip side of it, the hockey end towards the foot. Various slices then are placed uh, on a conveyor to go through the water knife, and it takes a picture of this, a computer processes, and it's going to cut very precise cuts depending on what we're looking for. So it might be a biscuit portion, an ounce or an ounce and a half. It might be what we kind of refer to as a dinner cut, like a three uh, to three and a half ounce cut. That's roughly taking a center slice and splitting it. It might be a full slice. Some customers say we want no exterior rind uh, or dark skin on the ham. We want it fully trimmed, uh, and it'll do those kind of things. So again, it does it with a precision that is is hard to match with a human knife, uh, and is very consistent, no jagged edges. And again, it cuts with a stream of water uh, that's uh, pressurized to about eighty thousand uh, psi. Wow. And again, yes, you're right, that was uh, Modern Marvels came in an episode they referred to as the pig several years ago, and that was one of the things that they were most impressed with. I think the thought that here's this very traditional company and, and does things, you know, according to very uh, old-style ways, but yet has some of the most current technology, mm-hmm. you know, used to, to continue and advance that. Well, I think the uh, if the Museum of Food and Drink people are listening, they're probably going to ask you to donate that item to the uh, museum because that sounds uh, pretty amazing. Uh, amazing how technology changes. And for you, when technology changes, those are big investments because you're well, going through these are big, expensive machines. They, they very much are, and they're equipment that obviously uh, you purchase and require continual uh, maintenance. Well, you know, uh, maybe someday we'll donate it. For right now, it's doing a wonderful <laughs> job for us, and uh, <laughs> we'll continue yeah. to uh, to use it. But you're yeah. exactly right. That that machine uh, is about a half-million-dollar machine. So uh, yeah. obviously, like you say, those are the kind of investments that you think long and hard about uh, mm-hmm. and hopefully uh, yield dividends. How many hams do you cure a year, if we can ask, more or less? Sure, more or less around half a million, 500,000. So at any one time you come into the plant, there's probably two to 250,000 hams, you know, around about any given time uh, Hmm. if you were to come out and visit us in various rooms. Again, most of them, it's a fairly patient process of being in a winter room, going to a spring room, you know, going to a summer room, obviously, then the areas where we do the packaging and processing. But, uh, again, about a half million a year, and we could actually cure a few more. So, uh, 
uh, maybe maybe the show will drum up some extra sales. Well, be prepared to at least double your sales because my mom always listens to the show and she loves ham, so she's going to really uh, put a dent in the next five hundred thousand. But uh, tell us uh, where our listeners could, uh, where do you send them to find your hams? Is it to your website? Well, probably that's the first place to start, and it's uh, pretty simple. It's smokehouse.com. We were an early adopter of of that technology, and uh, we've had a lot of folks who love that website, but Mm -hmm. uh, smokehouse.com. And if they're really wanting to kind of get a feel for who we are, go to YouTube and just do a quick search on Burgers Smokehouse, and there's, there's a number of different ones. I think there's a clip of Modern Marvels there. There's some that we've developed uh, specific to some of the products. So we have one that we just did recently. My brother and I were on, and we had talked about how to cook a whole country ham. Again, a process that takes several hours. It's not hard, but it's just kind of one of those things that is kind of lost today and something that, you know, if you're a foodie or just want to spend an afternoon, you know, it's about a, a six-hour process, and it's not hard at all. Well, Philip, you have been a, an absolutely great guest. You're you're, you're great on the radio, and um, I, if it's okay with you, we're going to try to have you back in a few weeks, and we'll cover a more specific issue uh, within the whole uh, ham curing world. But thank you so much for giving us part of your Sunday. Well, I'm just glad to be here, and I look forward to the next chance to uh, visit with you and your visitor and your listeners. All right, very good. Well, also thanks to you, Christy Robb, for being in the studio with us. Thanks to Joe for now, because of those sound effects you did earlier, officially producer and engineer. Uh, stay tuned for Katie Kiefer's Straight No Chaser, followed by The Mike and Judy Show. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.